Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. have the right version of the intro theme, but uh, mm. welcome back to the Bullshit Filter yep. proper, Ray. Um, how are you, buddy? Yeah, proper. All right. And just to let everybody know, when it comes to the intro, Cam's heart was in the right place, and I think that's all that matters, but I'm doing great. How, how about you? <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about, but okay. No, um, your heart I'm good. in the um, right place. Yeah. <clears throat> Whatevs, dude. Um, <laughs> welcome back to the War on Drugs, episode three point one nine, uh, aka the nineteenth hour of us talking about the war on drugs. Um, I right. hope most of you are following along with the story better than James Caffin. Uh, James Caffin on Facebook the other day said, "Oh, the war on drugs is, is great." I still don't know what's going on, but it's I don't understand it, but it's great. And I was like, "Really? Okay. Well, <laughs> well stop doing here's, tattoos here's, yeah. when you're listening to the show right. and pay better attention." Right. James is my advice. It, yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, uh, just just uh, to give uh, you uh, uh, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Congratulations to James and his lovely bride oh. to be. Uh, they are just, they're about to get married, but they just did like a pre-marriage honeymoon. They walked the Camino Trail in Spain, and they also went to Florence. They were there just after us, and probably other places I don't even keep up with. So congratulations anyway to James and his lovely American Absolutely. bride. James is an Aussie, and uh, like me, marrying a, good, oh, a lovely American that's girl. That's not going to work. Don't, don't um, say that. Joking. I'm joking. I hope he didn't tattoo her name uh, on himself. G- give it a couple of years, and then. But anyway, James, we can talk about that in private. No, I forgot what I was going to uh, say. Ah, so yeah, yeah. Anything? Oh, Got yes. Anything in- Just to let James know, the Cliff Notes version. Um, the stupidity of the American government is going to continue. So, spoiler alert. But uh, let's jump into it. Right. So uh, we got into the Nixon administration last time. Uh, We talked about how they uh, campaigned on being tough on crime and decided that uh, being tough on drugs was a good way to be tough on crime because they were convinced that the two things were connected, despite what all of the experts told them, that there isn't really much connection between drugs and crime. Uh, right. They they didn't care about that. They 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 wanted to believe it. They like Fox Mulder. They want to believe. That's right. all that matters. Um, yeah. And we'll explore as we continue along some of the real reasons why the Nixon administration decided to really kick off in a big way the war on drugs. And I've I've got some clips of President Richard Nixon uh, talking about it that I'll play as we go. But in May of 1971. A couple of U.S. congressmen went to Vietnam to see how things were going. And when they came back, they broke the news to the American people that they believed, based on the time they spent over there, that maybe as many as 15% of the U.S. troops stationed in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. That would be about 40 heroin. That would be yeah. about 40,000 troops. Um, not yeah. marijuana. No, they had been using marijuana, but the uh, Pentagon, as we'll see, decided that wasn't good enough. They wanted them using heroin. <coughs> <coughs> one, of, one of these congressmen said that troops going to Vietnam faced a much higher risk of becoming a heroin addict than dying in combat. Now, personally, wow. I... I yeah. think that's a good deal. I would much yeah. rather be addicted to heroin than dying in combat. Here, so here. Uh, I, I don't see what the problem is with that. Um, <laughs> no, I think here's, that's a here's win. The problem. 
Yeah, well, it's it's a relative win, but having 40,000 young men who are trained killers addicted to heroin that eventually have to come home, not good. Yeah, they've got PTSD, they're addicted to heroin, and they've been trained how to shoot shit and blow shit up. Uh, right. not, not a good yeah. combo. Yeah. Yeah. John Rambo. I'm thinking John Rambo. I'm thinking, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm not here to, to protect a- him from you. <laughs> I'm here to protect you from him. I used to be in charge of million million dollar equipment. Now I can't even keep a job in a car wash or whatever that line was. Yeah, I mean, th- obviously this is something that has to be dealt with. Now, one of the guys who's going to deal with it is a- Eagle, a.k.a. Bud Krogh. Um, right. Eagle Bud Krogh. We mentioned him in, I think, our last episode. He was uh, the guy who let Elvis into the building. He was uh, a young lawyer working in the Nixon administration, came out of the Seattle area, age 32. Uh, John Ehrlichman brought him in. John Ehrlichman, I think, is the attorney general uh, with Nixon. Mm -hmm. Um, Bud Crow grew up on the same street as Ehrlichman, um, and and when he graduated law school, he went to work for Ehrlichman's firm in Seattle. And when Ehrlichman uh, became involved in the Nixon campaign, he brought Bud along with him. Now, Bud ends up as the guy who's in charge of drug policy, for the White House, uh, right. he, he's he's coming up with ideas about how they can turn this into what what they can do in terms of drug policy that's going to help with their whole tough on crime stance. He's basically the guy that's crafting the war on drugs for Nixon. And when he heard what these congressmen had to say, he summoned to his office the Pentagon admiral who was responsible for military drug abuse. And get to hear what he had to say on it. And uh, we'll get into that in a second, but more on Bud Krogh. Interesting guy Mm -hmm. to be in charge of drug policy. Bud Krogh was a hardcore fundamentalist Christian who didn't drink, didn't smoke, and didn't use drugs. And I have to ask you, Ray, is that the person you want making your drug policy? Somebody who's never used drugs, doesn't even drink what what do they know about drugs, really? Yeah, they don't know anything. Also, you can only imagine that he's going to think everything is a sin, everything is a weakness. It's all put out there by the devil. There's going to be no tolerance. There's going to be no empathy. I'm only guessing, but I'm also guessing I'm not far from the truth. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't think that's the right person. I think the person you want making drug policy is a former addict. Somebody yeah. who's used drugs. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. But somebody who, <laughs> somebody who is a, a, a f- personally familiar with what it's like to use drugs, why people use drugs, um, and, right. and that's the person you want making drug policy, I'm guessing. But anyway, Bud Krogh's the guy. Now, he brings the Admiral in, and he says, uh, Hey, Admiral, how many uh, heroin addicts do you think we have in Vietnam? And the Admiral said... A hundred, maybe two hundred. Not the most. <laughs> right. Uh, so not 40,000, like the no, congressman said. Way one, one or two hundred. And when he was asked to justify that number, what did he say? I think he was going by, was it the Army's arrest records? I mean, which is legitimate and that's his job. But then you have to question the legitimacy of those records. So technically he's correct, but I think um, Bud realizes there's probably more to it than that. Yeah, so Bud decides to go to Vietnam himself to investigate. And he travels over there with no entourage, just a pass that says he can go anywhere and see anything as an official representative of the White House. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Huh? 
enough jane's addiction thank you jane's addiction yeah ties in well with this uh ties in well with this uh show jane's addiction oh yeah Yeah. perfect just wanted to mention that um obviously bud's got to work on this because i don't know the exact percentage but there's a decent percentage of the american people that aren't really crazy about the war they're not crazy about ramping up the war and if they're going to find out that their sons are addicted and may came, come home addicted, this is just going to be even worse. I mean, the liberals are going to say, pull them out. This is a horrible, this is all a horrible mess. The conservatives are going to reply by quit pussyfooting around and bomb and shoot more and win the war. So this is a no situation. Bud's got to go there, assess the truth, and try to come up with something to save Nixon's war. I reckon it'd be a good way to travel anywhere. Just having a pass that says yeah. you can go anywhere and see anything. Yeah, I would have liked that when we went to the Vatican, man. <laughs> it would have been great to just like. You would have figured uh, out some secrets. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he flies all over the country, and as he's doing that, he's watching American soldiers snorting and smoking smack and mixing it with alcohol and drinking it pretty yeah. much everywhere he goes. Out Everyone was smoking. Yeah. Everyone was smoking pot as well. Now, as I indicated before, it turns out the Pentagon was responsible uh, to a large degree for the heroin problem. Pentagon and the CIA, and I'll explain them separately, but start with the Pentagon. So in 1968, they had figured out that lots of the troops were smoking weed, so they tried to ban it. Sounds good. They got uh, sniffer dogs on the job. They searched men's bunks. Anyone caught in possession would be arrested. So the men did what addicts do or people that are drug users. If your drug of choice is no longer available, what do you do, right? Get clean and uh, become a Christian? Or, Or, hear me out on this one, or you do the old switcheroo. You find something else because you're just used to getting that high. And let's face it, they're in Viet fucking Nam in fighting in war. They could die at any second. When you're not on the job, you need to forget all this shit. And drugs are a great way to do that. It's a bit like when you go to prison and there's no more pussy. Yeah. Uh, you just uh, start tapping that ass, man. Right. Of uh, you, you switch you know, from the, one hole. Anyway, um, yeah, go from one drug prettiest- to the other. Prettiest boy on the block kind of thing, yeah. Um, So that's what the troops in Vietnam did. They shifted from pot to heroin, harder to detect. It's odorless, far less bulky than pot, so easier to hide up your butt, uh, maybe. I don't know. That's where you, I know that's where they kept watches. Um, Anyway, as we've seen during the series, when people have a need to get wasted, they're going to get wasted. Yeah. It does at, at any cost. Ban alcohol and they'll drink moonshine. Ban drugs, they'll buy them from the mob at inflated prices. When it comes to drugs, yeah. prohibition has never worked. But uh, yeah. apparently in the 60s, the uh, Pentagon hadn't worked that out yet. If I can take it one step further, you could put poison in the drugs and the alcohol like the government did. People are still going to drink. So, like, yeah, that's people are going to find a way because they feel they need to. I don't know why. Here we are, 30 years, 40 years after Prohibition, and they still haven't learned that lesson. I think we're going to find out parts of that over the next couple of episodes because at the at the end of my notes I have why in the fuck is this still going on? 
um, which I've asked several times. And I think we're going to find out part of the answer here is that it feeds another type of machine, which we'll go into later. But that's just that's just the way it is. Hmm. And by the way, using drugs while in the military was a crime. Yes. I mean, it was a crime back home. It's a crime in the military. You got an automatic dishonorable discharge if you yeah. were caught using drugs. But uh, no one seemed to be really policing that (laughs) that hard, it seems, in Vietnam. And I was surprised. I thought you were going to say that if you were, if they could prove you were addicted to drugs, that that's a dishonorable discharge. But no, I looked it up. Just the fact that if you were caught with it, that's enough to get you kicked out and and pretty much have, you know, ruin your your resume by with with a dishonorable discharge. So this is a very serious thing that like uh, Bud found, people were doing it openly. There was no separation between those who weren't and and who were. The officers were doing it as well. I mean, it is just there. It's relatively cheap. People are having a good time and trying to forget the horrors of war. So Bud Krogh, when he got back to Washington, called Jerome Jaffe. Now, Jaffe was a psychiatrist in Illinois who ran a clinic where they were treating addicts with methadone, Mm -mm. which was, uh, I mean, methadone had been around since the 30s, like uh, heroin, I think it was invented by German scientists. I think the uh, Germans were running out of um, opium uh, in the late 30s, so Hitler said, oi! Go invent me some more drugs. I need more drugs. And they invented methadone. Uh, now, one of, Krog's, one of Krog's team, another young Christian who didn't drink or smoke, Jeffrey Donfeld, had reached out to Jaffe uh, a year earlier, 1970, to prepare a report for the White House on how to tackle drug addiction nationwide. Keep in mind that Nixon was elected on this law and order, tough on crime campaign. They were convinced that drugs and crime were connected. And so their theory was if you reduce the number of people using drugs, Mm -hmm. you'll reduce crime. Uh, Again, not a lot of data supported that theory, but that doesn't matter. You know, again, and we have to remember they were Christians. They were Christians, yeah, so yeah. you know Believe science faith. and logic and reason didn't make <laughs> didn't factor a lot into their view of the world. It was right just, yeah, I believe what right. I want to believe, and fuck what. Yeah. The, and, and this, and I'm being partially facetious and partially not. This is, you know, for, for, for many, many, many years, when people have said, "Oh, why are you so tough on the Christians? Just leave them alone." I'm like, no, well, no, because <coughs> when you have People out there right. in government, in education, in business that uh, have this mindset that science and logic uh, don't matter or uh, that faith is equal to those things, or in a lot of cases, faith is superior to those things, it makes the world dangerous for me right. and my family. Yeah. Because those people are out there in positions of power making bad decisions because they, they have a bad reasoning process that they go through. So it affects all of us. When they say, oh, they don't, they're not hurting anyone, just let them know. They are. Yeah. They are hurting yeah. everyone because they're part of society uh, and they're, they're leading society astray. So I think it does affect all of us. What What... What other people believe does affect us all. And even worse, like we see here, some of them have actually had professional commissions, draw papers, draw up reports, and they ignore it. But at least Bud has the, the, the decency to go, you know what, someone has looked at this scientifically, someone has thought this through, and they've actually got an expert. Maybe it's worth, oh, I don't know, talking to one of them. Yeah. So they called in Jerome Jaffe to help them. Uh, they'd ignored his report, by the way, the year before. They just threw it in a drawer. Um, <laughs> they had to deal with drug addicts. Because his, his report in 1970, he said, well, drugs are, uh, you know, having a drug addiction, using drugs is a health issue. It's right. not a sign of moral failing. Or they're like, oh, fuck that. And they threw that in the drawer. But they called him up because now they need him. So he doesn't believe also that out. there's any connection. He doesn't believe there's any connection between drugs and crime. In his experience, most criminals who were drug users were criminals before they used drugs. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the major crime most heroin users committed, apart from using heroin, which was a crime, was selling heroin to other heroin users. Once you remove that, most yeah. of them weren't criminals. Yeah. But anyway, he wants to see yeah. addicts get helped, so he agreed to write the report for uh, Jeffrey Donfill. Yeah, I do appreciate this about Bud Crow. I mean, he, he, he is Christian, and you, you've got to imagine he's got pretty extreme ideas, but he was probably freaked out enough by what he saw in Vietnam to say, I don't need another, um, I don't need another commission. I don't need a board of inquiry. I don't need any bullshit. I don't need any politics. I need someone who knows what they're talking about. Get this guy on the phone present my situation to him and say, write me up something. I need cold, hard facts because nothing else is working. And, and at least it, despite his being a Christian, I, I respect him calling this guy up and say, give me the best you got because it's, it's, it's horrible out what I saw in Vietnam. So getting back to uh, Fuck Knuckles, Jerome Jaffe, <clears throat> he's writing this one report for the Whiteers. This is back in 1970 on how to tackle drug addiction nationwide. And he's saying methadone. Get him on methadone. Yeah. Shit talking works. about heroin in particular. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Donfeld, the guy who worked for Bud Krog, had another commission to write an, uh, uh, another report, another group he commissioned to write uh, another report. He, he wasn't throwing all of his coins in the one fountain here. He's, right. he's, is that the right saying? Did you hear, Putting all of his eggs in one basket. Did you hear about the fight scene in the Trevi Fountain after we left? It was on the news. <laughs> what? Yeah, Seriously? The, yeah, there were, there were, I think it was two women who were fighting over supposedly the best so, uh, place spot to take a selfie and they started going at each other. And, of course, Italians being Italians, they didn't break up the fight. They just started videotaping it. Eventually, the cops come <laughs> along and they break them up. And I'm like, oh, my God, after every place we leave, something happens. I don't know if that's good or bad. But, yeah, I just I just pictured um, Alex getting in a fight with someone and Tony coming in and smacking heads. But people just got to calm down. And, and, and now that you mentioned Tina Turner, do we need to pay our respects to Aretha Franklin? Yeah, I'm going to play some okay. Aretha tracks right. today, man. All so, right. yeah. All right. Yeah, the, the day we recorded this, Aretha Franklin passed away. Only 76. She's one of these people. I said to Chrissy, I I feel like Aretha should have been like 100, man, because right. she's been around forever. Yes. Man. She was old. I was thinking about it this morning. Like when, you know, when I became aware of who she was, probably in the early 80s, mm-hmm. um, she seemed to me to be really old, and yeah. then I realized I she was probably my age. I am oh now back then. This <laughs> is like thirty odd, thirty three years ago. She was right. probably my age, but younger yeah. than me, probably in the mid forties. Um. So anyway, Don Feld commissioned another group to write a similar report. This was a group of people from the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, mm-hmm. the National Institute of Health, and the FDA. Wow. 
Now, their report said that addiction was the result of root causes. <gasps> Racism, alienation, a lack of opportunity. And if the government wanted to do something about drugs, right. they need to address the root causes, pour money into housing, jobs, youth work, etc. Counseling, yeah. In the meantime, they said psychiatry was very useful in dealing with addiction, but they were totally against methadone, which is what Jerome Jaffe was uh, suggesting. They uh, said it, it just uh, treated the addiction without treating the root causes. It was a Band-Aid mm, for it. Mm. But the point um, is, these two together, it sounds like it would be very powerful response to the drug problem. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They said that, you know, uh, um, just just methadone alone was defining addiction as a disease suffered by individuals as opposed to being a social pathology. Mm. So one viewpoint is that, well, you know, people, people use drugs when they're miserable, and they're miserable quite often right. because they're suffering from, you know, as we said, racism, uh, a lack of opportunity, all that kind of stuff, and so they use drugs. It's, it's a social issue. You need to deal with the underlying causes. The other viewpoint is, oh, they're just weak. <laughs> they're just weak. They're bad. Morally yeah. weak people. Yeah, they're bad Set people. Out. That's right. Mm. Um, now, methadone, as I said, was what Jaffe was reporting. Now, around the time that these reports were getting written, again, this is 1970, uh, the Nixon White House was dealing with another problem. Mm -hmm. When federal agents made drug busts, they usually reported them in terms of the weight that they captured. So, you know, uh, officers today... Uh, did a drug bust, they captured 100 pounds of marijuana. Right. But when they captured heroin, it was obviously a lot less in terms of weight because it's a stronger drug. So this is when they started reporting busts in terms of street value. Ah. So there's no po it's not good a headline to say they uh, they made a bust and it was uh, <laughs> a, you know, a kilogram of heroin. <laughs> like, yeah, it just doesn't sound impressive. That was Barry and Stan's idea. So they started... Yeah, they, it was. So they came out with better marketing if you talk about it in terms of street value, and you still hear that today. Right. Well, they made a bust and they got street value of blah, 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 of right. cocaine or heroin. I'm like, who, who gives a fuck how much the street value is? What, what, what's, what, who cares? Yeah. Anyway. But all that was a year ago. So now Crow gets Jaffe on the phone and asks him to come up with a plan to help deal with the soldiers in Vietnam who are heroin addicts. And, and Jaffe told him, that technology had been invented that could detect opiates in urine. Right. But not marijuana. So, and the other thing is this machine is as big as a freaking office, but if anybody can afford it, the government can. So you buy one machine, test the men on their way home from um, Vietnam, um, and if they're positive, you, you keep them there in Vietnam to detox them, test them later. And uh, the men are so eager to leave, leave Vietnam that this could be used as a motivation. And the beauty, beautiful part of this is if it, you eventually test everyone, the government will have a truly accurate idea of the, how big the problem is that they're dealing with. So again, Jaffrey just sits down at his kitchen table, puts all this stuff out, puts this port, uh, report out, these these list of recommendations and sends it on to Bud. There was only one of these urine analysis machines <laughs> in use in the entire country, the oh United States God. at the time. But he's on the cutting edge of technology. Yeah. So he says, "Yeah, get one of these machines, and uh, so you can't come home until you're clean." Now he actually didn't think they'd be able to do it because, in theory, it mm -hmm. would be unconstitutional right. to subject someone to a random screening. Yeah. But uh, the Nixon administration went, constitution. Smartstitution. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, they took care of that. Um, but the other problem they had was, as I mentioned before, any soldier found to be using drugs was going to be in a lot of shit legally. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want to have to dishonorably discharge 40,000 Vietnam vets. Yeah. That's not a good look. 
So, uh, what do you do when uh, the law's not on your side? You just you just change it. So Nixon <laughs> Nixon did. sent a one. Sent a one-page memo to the Secretary of Defence ordering that drug use no longer be considered a crime under the Military Code of Justice, and Boom, poof, it dog. just disappeared. Yes. But, I, I mean, do you admire Nixon for doing that? Because even though it's – we're going to find out later his whole – and I think you mentioned this on the previous episode – this whole thing about the war on drugs, yes, I'm sure he believed it, but this is nothing more than – a political process, but even though this is a political expediency, I do admire someone like this who can just go, "Oh, if that's going to hold us up from taking care of these servicemen, then let's fix it right now." I, from from what I could tell, I mean, that was certainly something that he he deserved credit for. Yeah, but it's the great irony of Nixon. Um, on one hand, he's the law and order guy. On the yeah. other hand. These forty thousand guys are breaking the law. We'll just change the law so yeah. they're not breaking the law anymore. Yeah. That's the that's the best way to deal with crime. Just make those crimes not crimes anymore. <gasps> what an idea! Huh. It's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ha- and then you can go look. A year ago, we had forty thousand guys now, breaking the law in Vietnam. Now we have none. We have this f- is how effective my administration <laughs> is. We have forty thousand partiers. Now, um, I'm not sure how much detail you want to go into, but uh, Jaffe is going to get another phone call from Bud. Say, hey, why don't you come see me? Let's go talk to some people I know. That's later. Okay. That's later. All right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so Nixon is commander-in-chief. In one with a one-page memo reverses decades of military policy wow. regarding the use of drugs in the military. And in doing so, opened the door to massive treatment of drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you should get credit for that because they were able to go, okay, well, <clears throat> let's treat these troops now as patients rather yeah. than as criminals. But here's the other... If only yeah. it had the same mindset to everyone else in America. Especially the darker people. But... um but on the other page, uh, other side of that, he also does introduce random urine testing for drugs. So again, they need the machine that there's only one of. But the point is, all of this is going to have on the tail end of it the idea of, of bringing this in about random drug testing. And, you, and I think it's easier to do that to uh, soldiers than it is to civilians because you can just give them an order. But the point is, the precedent is now being set. Yeah, and once they once they used these machines to test every American soldier in Vietnam for heroin addiction, they found out that 40% of them had tried heroin and nearly 20% were addicted. Now, remember, the Admiral said 1 to 200. Maybe 200. Turns out it's more like 50,000 were addicted God. and maybe 100,000 had actually used heroin That's over them. Yeah. But where were the U.S. troops getting their heroin from, Ray? Um, I imagine either Amazon or <laughs> Amazon International, um, maybe the local is that, Walmart. Is that, is that covered under Prime? Do you get that same day? <laughs> it is in the big cities, but not in the country where I live. I have to wait the two days. And let me tell you, buddy, waiting for your bag of smack for two days, that's pretty fucking hard. I'm I'm chosen for the UPS man. I really am. I'm I'm starting to get the shakes now. Just thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing local markets. Uh, again, it's in, in America. It's very important for us to shop local, and I think yes. maybe that's what the uh, you know the troops were doing. Yeah, yeah. So it was all coming in from the Golden Triangle. Now. Um, Let's give the folks some background on the Golden Triangle. I'm still hearing Golden Shower, but please go ahead. Yes, I knew you would be. <laughs> and if you can get a Golden Shower in the Golden Triangle. Oh, that'd be sweet. Yeah. Yeah. From somebody who's covered in gold. <laughs> That's hot. Welcome to 1975, Ashton Powers and Farsha. Excuse me while I change. The holler boogie has made me sweaty. Yeah, sweaty. You see, Mr. Powers. I love gold. 
the look of it, the taste of it, the smell of it, the texture. I love gold so much that I even lost my genitalia in an unfortunate smelting accident. Hence the name, Gold Member. Uh, holy shit is that Beyonce yeah Beyonce in that movie it fucking was it was Beyonce long time totally forgot Beyonce was in that movie when her husband was so faithful to her I don't know I don't think they were together back then oh I have no idea I was going to say allegedly just to cover my ass yeah 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 yeah. Uh, um, the Golden Triangle so Golden Triangle is the name given by the CIA to the region where the borders of Myanmar, but back then known as Burma, Mm -hmm. Thailand and Laos all meet. Mm. And in late 1969, heroin laboratories started springing up there and were producing massive quantities of heroin. It was basically the the biggest supplier of heroin uh, in the world for a long time. Wow. Now... Why this happened is an interesting story. So Myanmar was controlled by the British mm-hmm. from 1886 until after World War II when the country was destroyed during the war. Right. Ja- Japanese were in there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then uh, it had been under – it had a brief, brief period after World War II of some semblance of independence and democracy and then – came under a military dictatorship in 1962, and it's been under one pretty much ever since. I think they had some semblance of elections over the last couple of years, but it's still Mm -hmm. pretty much under a military dictatorship. Um, Laos, on the other hand, had been controlled by the French Mm -hmm. from the time of the Franco-Siamese War in 1893 up until it won its independence during the First Indochina War, in 1953. Mm-hmm. Thailand is the only country in Southeast Asia to never have been colonised by any Western power. Wow. Partly because Britain and France agreed in 1896 to make it the buffer state. Oh, it was like the Switzerland what? of Asia. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the relationship between the Golden Triangle and the CIA is interesting and disputed. According to quite a few historians, the CIA had a lot to do with the heroin trade there. Uh, According to the CIA, no, don't look at us. We had nothing to do with it. Never been proven. You'll never will prove it. Yeah, Yeah, trust us. We're the CIA. (laughs) Now, there's one great book on this uh, by a guy called Alfred McCoy, wrote a book in 1972 called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. McCoy was and maybe still is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. Mm. Um, We we had another guy from Wisconsin on. Oh, we had the Secretary of State of Wisconsin on. My bud, yeah. I think he still is the uh, professor. He's the J.R.W. Schmale Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nice. Um, Billy McCoy. Al. Al McCoy. We should get him on. We should get him on the show. Yeah. Wait a minute. He's born in 1945. So he's not that old. He's in the mid-70s. He's all right. We he's get Brian. Him on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same age as uh, forgetting Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Um, hopefully he's doing better than her, though. Right. Um Yeah, so uh, um, according to McCoy anyway, uh, the CIA and their French equivalent, the uh, Service de Documentation Extérieure et Contre-Espionnage, a.k.a. the S-D-E-C-E, or Sedeci, have a very long history. I like the long version. They have a very long... Yeah, yeah, you do like like the long version, I know. (laughs) They have a very long history with the heroin trade. Right. Now, let's go back a bit. So in the early decades of the Cold War, the CIA was busy making alliances with every anti-communist group they could in the world, Mm -hmm. and Asia was no different. Didn't matter how brutal a dictatorship it was, if they were anti-communist, they were a friend of the USA. 
I'm a psychopath, but I'm anti-communist. So can I have some money? Yes, you can, and lots of weapons. Please, <laughs> please take them and kill commies. Will do. And we've, we've talked about this at length on our Cold War show. Um, so Chiang Kai-shek's brutal military dictatorship of Taiwan, which implemented the white terror in Taiwan, was known by the Americans as Free China. <laughs> sure. Why not? After, after the Kuomintang, uh, the, 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 the nationalist uh, Chinese party, um, was defeated by Mao and the communists, mm-hmm. they basically went to Taiwan and took it over and said, this is ours now, and killed everybody they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And the Americans supported them in that and said, hey, you're the, they're the good guys. KMT yep. are the good guys. Well, when you're killing um, communists, I think that by default makes you the good guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the brutal police state in South Vietnam was free Vietnam from an American perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So didn't matter how brutal you were, if you were fighting the commies, you were the good guys. Anything to stem the flow of quote-unquote communist aggression. Which, as we've pointed out in the Cold War show, was really just a competitor to the idea of a global American-run economic regime. That was the big issue they had with communism, is it was a competitor to Americans running the world. Yeah, which is much better. So... They were determined to restrict Soviet influence in Western Europe. And so the the American um, clandestine forces, mostly the CIA, intervened in the internal politics of Germany, Italy, and France. Mm-hmm. In Sicily, the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA, formed an alliance with the Sicilian Mafia. Hell yeah. To fight the Italian Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in France, the city of Marseille, great port, Marseille down the south of France on the coast, became a major battleground between the CIA and the French Communist Party during the late 1940s. Damn. Um, now, to fight the communists in France, the CIA recruited... Corsican gangsters to battle the communist strikers. And they supported leading figures of of the Corsican underworld who were in Marseille, um, who also didn't like the communists because, you know, communists don't like the drug lords, drug lords don't like the communists, etc., the mafia. We know that when Castro took over Cuba, the, one of the first things he did was kick, kick the mafia out, which is why they were pissed and were cooperating with the CIA to try and kill Castro for uh, so long. Right. So here you have the CIA partnering up with the Sicilian mafia and the Corsican mafia, um, who obviously were at the same time playing a huge role in Europe's post-war heroin traffic. Uh, which was then in turn smuggling most of the heroin into the United States for mm-hmm. the next 20 or 30 years. Right. Ever heard of The French Connection? Uh, the movie with Gene Hackman? Yeah, great movie. Yeah. 1971 film starring Gene Hackman. The first R-rated movie ever to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Wow. Complete badass Popeye Doyle in that <laughs> Directed by William Friedkin. Um, well, the French Connection was what they called the scheme by which heroin was smuggled from Turkey to France and then to Canada and then into the United States. Oh, my God. That's why it was called the French Connection. It's how the heroin... Turkey at the time in the, the 40s and the 50s um, was... and the 60s was one of the largest, if not the largest, producer of opium in the world. Um, And it was actually allowed to grow opium Mm -hmm. uh, by the World Health Organization and all these international bodies because, I mean, somebody needs to grow opium. It's used for legitimate purposes like morphine and codeine. Um, But they also had a big illicit opium trade and, and it was smuggled via France into the United States. That's why it was called the French Connection. 
Um, and it was, yeah, it sort of peaked, I think, the French connection in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, provided the vast majority of heroin into the United States until it finally got busted, but it was headed by Corsican criminals. Oh, my God. Now, early on, the guy who set it up was a guy called Paul Carboni, who was from Corsica uh, and ended up as the godfather of Marseille. Um, and having been to Corsica now, Ray, yeah. you can understand how, uh, yeah, man, that's, that's, that's where you're going to grow up. You know, when we drove, uh, we took a bus from Ajaxio right. up to, um, fuck, where did we get off? Uh, from Ajaxio up to, uh, oh my Bastia. God. Yeah, across. Bastia. Yeah. That was Just the wild and hard territory. Yeah, imagine what. Imagine what that was like a hundred years ago. <laughs> that was rough the, that little was, city, like little yeah. For those of you who have you who have been on a roller coaster ride while doing acid, it's a lot like that. And we did. And how long was that ride? That ride was over an hour, three hours. Or, it was insane. It was insane. three three and a half hours. Three was, and a half yeah, hour. to go oh from Ajaxio to Bastia. Yeah. Anyway, so Paul Carboni was the godfather of Marseille. He was the first guy to import opium from Indochina Mm -hmm. and transform it into heroin near Marseille and then send it to the United States. God. Now, interestingly, he died on the 16th of December 1943 in a train crash. Right. in uh, France, there was uh, a bunch of German soldiers on leave on the train, and uh, the resistance, oh. French resistance, blew up the train tracks. Paul Carboni happened to be on the train. He had both legs crushed, and he took some hours to die. He was trapped in the train. And apparently he told the rescue workers to save everybody else. He said, I'm finished, but try to look after those who can can be saved. Finally said, uh, smoked his last cigarette and said, c'est la vie, and died. So he was a a good good mafia boss. (laughs) Um, Heroin smuggling mafia boss. Who considered us? So in in the early 1960s, the Italian government, cracked down on the Sicilian mafia. And in 1967, the Turkish government announced that it would begin phasing out the cultivation of opium poppies. Yeah. Nixon pushed that along a few years later, as we'll see. So um, the American mafia and the, and the Corsican syndicates had to shift their sources of supply from uh, Turkey right. through to Southeast Asia where they'd been able to create uh, massive farms in the Golden Triangle. There was a lot of government corruption there, a lot of wilderness, no one went there, so it was perfect. But so the CIA's role in making this happen is that in the early 50s, after the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Chinese Army, had been mostly wiped out, Um, Chiang Kai-shek himself went to Taiwan, but some of the KMT were run out of China by the communists and they went to Burma. Mm. Um, Then they got financial and logistical support from the CIA who wanted them to go back into China to re-engage with the communists. Now, the CIA set up a covert program called Operation Paper that was transporting weapons and supplies to the KMT from Taiwan via Thailand with the approval of our friend President Truman um, and the king of Thailand. And this is where Air America got started. I think you you brought up Air America on an earlier episode. I did, and and I was doing some reading, and to be honest with you, uh, because I had said that I pretty much went full all the way, saying that they were they were their aircraft were um, were shipping this stuff out, and you were saying that that might not be the case. And I went back and did some rereading, and to be honest with you, I'm even more confused. It seems to be all over the place that um, locals were given. The local warlord was given planes. No, it was the CIA. No, it would only happen in the beginning, and then planes weren't used afterwards. So I really don't have a firm fix on how involved, if at all, that whole America, uh, Air America thing was. Yeah, so it it is very murky. Um, 
From McCoy's perspective, mm-hmm. the CIA didn't dabble in drug trafficking um, uh, as part of policy. Right. Um, uh, but mm-hmm. he does say it was the work um, of uh, uh, um, yeah, some people that just did back deals. Um, he, he also, I mean, he says it wasn't like corrupt agents who were trying to make a, bug, a buck off it, but maybe some of the planes were borrowed or stolen or right. used from time to time. But the big role that the CIA definitely played is in setting up the Kuomintang in uh, Burma. Mm-hmm. They financed them, gave them weapons, you know, gave them some training, all the usual stuff. The KMT then did try to retake the Yunnan province of China, which lies on the north border of Burma, right. in 1952. But they failed. Chinese communists, Mao's guys kicked him out again. So the KMT went, well, fuck that. Let's just take over Burma and start selling drugs. Let's just make money. So, Yeah. So Burma at the time was having its own uh, civil war post-independence and uh, it was ripe for the KMT to take over the this section of it and take over the Burmese opium trade. Now, the Burma have been producing opium since the days when the British controlled it. As you remember, the British loved opium in right. the 19th century. No. Couldn't get enough opium, <laughs> uh, mostly to take to China and sell it to the Chinese. Um, and, and so after the after World War II, Chinese traffickers were trying to reestablish their own heroin labs in China right. when the communists took control and drove them out. Again, communists totally against drugs. So the communist, uh, Mao Zedong's communist armies captured Shanghai, drove the... Uh, opium traffickers that were in China out. They went to Burma um, and they'd been set up there for a while. But uh, the KMT took it all over in the early 50s. And annual production went from 30 tonnes a year to 600 tonnes by the mid-1950s under the Kuomintang. So um, it went increased 20-fold in the period of a few years. I just wanted to throw this in real quick. Um, The the other reason the Golden Triangle was so important was you've already mentioned Turkey is going to start cutting back. Nixon's going to help with that. And in the 1950s, like you said, China, because of the communists and India in general, both really cracked down on opium production. So, yeah, so this, if, you're, if you're going to try to make a lot of money from it or if you need a steady supply, the Golden Triangle is in, in some ways the area to go to because everybody else is starting to crack down. And this is just a lawless area. It's chaos. It's confusion. It's civil war. The perfect place for the uh, CIA to operate. Well, the CIA is not, uh, again, as far as we know, isn't directly involved in the heroin business, but they support... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they supported the guys who then set up and run, and the CIA turned a blind eye, I think, to the heroin trade. Right. Um, This is how the KMT guys there were making money, and the C- and they they hated the communists obviously so the CIA well if you hate the communists okay. in the fifties the CIA doesn't really care what else you're doing right as long as you hate the communists I, you're good I just have to ask I mean okay I get that I totally get what you're saying because you hate them we hate them so I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do but the CIA had to know and we certainly know now that a lot of those drugs were making their way to the United States hurting a lot of people. I just I, – I, I drilled down, but I really couldn't find anything. Why wasn't the CIA either trying to do something, either stop the flow to the United States or tell someone in the United States? I mean, I get that they're seeing these guys as allies on, on the ground here, but they got to know the final destination of so much of those drugs. 
Yeah, well, you know, we'll explore. They, they were trying to stop it. That's why they broke, busted up the French connection eventually. But mm-hmm. And heroin wasn't big in the United States in the 50s. Ah. Keep in mind that like there was two tenths of fuck all people actually using drugs in the United States in the <laughs> 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, outside of marijuana, yeah. people weren't using heroin and cocaine. It was relatively small gotcha. time. Okay. Um, so it wasn't that big an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so Burma then becomes the world's leading producer of opium right up until the 1990s. Damn. Um, when the CIA uh, in the 80s, you know, supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets. Right. And once uh, they took over Afghanistan... Afghanistan became the leading producer of opium. <laughs> well, you you got to have a trade. I mean, you know, you got to bring something to the party. If you ever want to know which part of the world is going to become the leading producer of opium, just see where the CIA is supporting people. <laughs> That's that. usually where you're going to get most of the opium. Now, today, Myanmar is only the world's second largest producer of opium after Afghanistan. It mm-hmm. produces about 25% of the world's opium. Um, also, during this time in Laos, the CIA created a Hmong mercenary army mm-hmm. who manufactured heroin for sale to American GIs in South Vietnam. It wasn't just the Burmese. Right. Um, the Hmong also were doing it. So when you have, when you have, this is the thing: when you have poor farmers, right, uh, who are trying to survive, one of the most profitable, lucrative crops you can grow, uh, which is relatively easy to grow, mm. is opium poppies. I thought you were going to say corn. Okay, poppy, right? Poppies. So uh, wherever you have these war-torn countries with a big agricultural sector, yeah, these these farmers are going to grow poppy. Global market for it, uh, limited supply. So it makes sense. Um, But again, according to McCoy, the CIA wasn't deliberately involved in the heroin business in the Golden Triangle, Mm -hmm. but... The the existence of the heroin business was the consequence of the CIA's Cold War tactics, a bit like 9-11 was a consequence of the CIA's tactics. Wow. Um, you know, you they, they built up and supported and trained and financed the Mujahideen. But that's all. Which then became Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. which then allegedly carried out the 9-11 attacks. Right. So it's, it's you know, this interesting thing when you do the history of the CIA, which we should fucking do as a series. Yeah, it's good. Um, based on Weiner's book, Tim Weiner's book. But it's one of the things with the CIA. They'll go in and they'll do something in a country mm-hmm. and sometimes it seems to have been a win, although <laughs> right. usually not. Right. But even when it seems to have been a win... It comes back and bites them on the ass oh, 10, God. 20 years later in some some way. And, and you made Because they, they break shit. Right, yeah. And, and someone's got to put it back together. And you, you made a good point about the poor poor farmers because now because of the American involvement in the Vietnam War, you've got relatively affluent soldiers with money and way too much time on their hands when they're not on patrol who can afford what these farmers are growing. So it's, it's a win-win in, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's where American GIs in Vietnam were getting their heroin from, from groups funded and supported by the CIA, if not run by the CIA. And um, I think we'll wrap it up there, Ray, but I just want to say one thing that, that nobody was doing in this period was thinking. They just had to think, right. Ray. Sounds right. Change.